Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to our podcast on Porgy and Bess. This is Jonathan Dean, Seattle Opera Dramaturg, and I'm really, really excited about this opera season. We've got starting up now in August with one of my all-time favorite operas. Here with me to talk about Porgy and Bess is Mr. Porgy and Bess himself, John <laughs> Demain, who made his Seattle Opera debut conducting Porgy and Bess, I think the very first time we ever did it in 1987, and has since done it basically once a decade or so, as well as other operas, but it's, it's a great uh, treat to have... Probably the conductor has the most experience of this opera who's with us today. Who's with us today, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, John, uh, to start, if you would, by telling us about your first, the first time you ever encountered Porgy and Bess. I'm guessing you were a kid. Well, I heard about it as a child. I think I was a sophomore at Juilliard in New York City, and the New York City Center was presenting it. Cab Calloway was sporting life. I remember just being dazzled by the music and dazzled by the story and everything. But, you know, I didn't know it from the inside. But I remember that I just thought this is a great piece and deserves the title of the Great American Opera. And then in 1976, when Sherwin Goldman went to the Met and suggested that they do it for the bicentennial of the country, and the Met, they passed on it. Mm. What a way to celebrate the American Bicentennial than the great American opera. Sherwin Goldman is the producer. Right, and I think he had been an investor in shows like Hair and Chorus Line. I mean, I'm not, don't quote me on that, but he had invested in Broadway shows and he was deeply involved in the scene. He called up David Gockley and said, I have this idea, would you be interested? I was in my first year as music director of the Texas Opera Theater, which is, you know, the Peace Corps touring arm of the Houston Grand Opera as their first music director that would take them on tour. I come off the first leg of this tour and somebody comes up to me and says, I hear Houston Grand Opera's gonna do Porgy and Bess, did you know that? I said, no, they are, really? And so I did this classic thing where I just, I, I marched to David Gockley's office, we barely knew each other, I mean, I'm out on tour, you know, and I threw open the door and I said, <laughs> I said, I hear you're doing Porgy and Bess. He looked up and he said, that's right. I said, well, you should hire me to conduct it. <laughs> and he said, why? I said, well, I'm the best musical comedy conductor in the business, but I don't want anybody to know it because I'm trying to have a career in classical music and opera. And, and so I'm the ideal person to do this because it, it's both, you know. And he looks at me and he says, can you do jazz? And I said, oh, sure. Well, in mu when you're conducting Broadway musicals, you conduct every kind of music known mm -hmm. to man. So you deal with a lot of jazz. It happens to be already written out, but you mm -hmm. still have to create the style and all of that. So I said, oh, sure. But so the next thing he did was he took me back into the coaching room. And Moselle had just come out with the first Urtext recording of Porgy and Bess. And he dropped the needle on Florence Quivar singing My Man's Gone Now. And he said in David Gockley's inimitable way, can you do better than that? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know whether I can do better than that, but I wouldn't do it that way. I said, that has none of the subconscious jazz information that goes underneath this piece, throughout the piece. So I guess because I was so outrageous and said I wouldn't <laughs> do it that way, he said, okay, I'll give it to you. And you were very young. 32. And he was? 32. I think he liked my chutzpah. Mm. You know, I think he liked the fact that I was game for it and that I felt really confident that I could bring something to it. But I said, are we negotiating uh, to have a new stage director? And he said, yes. Well, the woman who uh, we actually replaced 
1976, who was directing the show and had exclusive rights to directing the show, was a woman named Ella Gerber. It was the only production of Porgy we were seeing. With all due respect, it was a white Jewish woman's perspective on the black experience, on the southern black experience. It evolved more and more like a Broadway show. It still had the power of the love story, but everything around it was becoming less and less authentic. And I went to New York, and I think we must have, I felt like we auditioned 500 African-Americans. But I remember a couple times, there were these old guys who, older gentlemen who came up to the table and said to me, is that woman directing? And uh, we said, no. And they said, all right, I'll sing. So you had African-Americans within the cast disowning this piece because they did not feel it was being presented the way Gershwin intended and, and reflecting their culture. So for example, Ella Gerber had taken the second verse of A Woman is a Sometime Thing and given it to Sport in Life just to make it more entertaining. But the thing is, it's all about developing this relationship between Jake and Clara, and you have very little time to do it. Mm -hmm. And you have to do it during a woman is a sometime thing. We need to have some sympathy. The audience has to to like them. And so he shows Clara that he's better at putting the baby to sleep than she is, and of course he isn't. And that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't do any manipulation like that. We went back to what Gershwin wrote. So we didn't have a stage director, and I was guest conducting at the Juilliard School, and this wonderful director, Jack O'Brien, was directing. So we're working together, and I was so impressed with him, and I told David about him, and he said, well, take him out and ask him what he would do if he had a chance to, to direct Porgy and Bess. And so I did, and I just asked him that question, and without batting an eye, he said, give it back to the people it was intended for. And that's all we needed to hear because we both felt that way. Having it be authentically Southern, authentically African-American, an authentic representation of their lives at that time. And so we engaged him. And David sends me to do a pre-production meeting with him in San Diego so we can sort of get on the same page. And right before we go to San Diego, Sherwin Goldman shoves the play into our hands. It was fascinating to me that the piano vocal score that was currently published had no stage directions in it, not or, or almost no stage directions in it, very little instruction as to what all this music meant. So when you read the play, you got to read the actual lines that DuBose Hayward chose to take from the play and include in the opera. And then you also learn from the play that the play was interlaced all throughout with spirituals. Mm-hmm. George and Ira Gershwin just replaced those spirituals with ones of their own. But because they didn't do the stage direction that told why those spirituals were there, and you just listened to them, and they were written in the, what I call the Busby Berkeley style of the 1930s, you know, having these big ninth chords and these big jazz chords, it would be easy to fall into a very presentational way with the piece, and that's what So happened. it ends up more decorative, like those yeah. those 1930s operettas and the kind of the vaudeville type stuff where the there isn't really a plot. Stuff. It's more where you just keep stopping right. to sing and, and, and dance. Where you get into trouble, the perfect example is Promised Land. End of the funeral scene. End of the funeral scene when the body is going to have a Christian burial and there's this, this hymn of thanksgiving. But Gershwin wrote this choo-choo train because we're going to get in the choo-choo train and we're going to head for the promised land. And it became so much about 
a choo-choo train and about choreography, it lost why it was there to begin with, which was to thank God that the body was going to have a Christian burial. That's one of my favorite scenes, but it's always because of the plot of Besk sort of being finally accepted by the community. The thing that's so beautiful about the, the reading the play is that it says that Bess, so overcome with emotion, begins singing this hymn of thanksgiving, almost as she doesn't even know it's coming out of her mouth. Porgy, understanding what's going on, goes to her side and gives her some support. And gradually, the people there at the wake begin to forget that it was Bess who started this and begin taken up with the moment and, and, and celebrate this thing. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a kind of tacit acceptance of Bess, the beginning to accept Bess into the community. Yeah, that's such a vital scene in the story. It's interesting. That's the kind of thing that you would just not even notice that that was what was happening if you didn't have the stage directions, if you were just, as, as you say, doing it kind of Broadway style. Yeah, you could present it in a whole, totally different way. I remember I got out to San Diego, called up Jack O'Brien, and I said, have you read the play yet? And he said, no. And I said, I'm not meeting with you until you read the play. I sat in my hotel room for four hours. He calls back, and he said, <laughs> It's all there, isn't it? <laughs> all we have to do is that. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that's all we have to do is that. But again, here we got two whiteies, you know, fronting this all black cast, putting on Porgy and Bess. It was very interesting to me. I mean, I'll never forget the first day of rehearsal. I went in to teach the music, and there were this 36 African Americans sitting there, and there was not a smile on one of their faces. There was no greeting to me nothing it was sort of like okay what are you going to tell us and we started to work and they saw that I understood think I understood the music of Gershwin they thought I did and that I was going to let that spirit of what this was all about come through and by the first intermission we were family it Mm -hmm. was just a love affair from the very beginning which is how it was in 1935 that cast Mm -hmm. adored Alexander Smallins and Ruben Mamoulian and that team putting it sounds like Gershwin became you know, close personal friends with Todd Duncan, the first Porgy. The first Porgy. I was reading something that, you know, Duncan many years later is visiting him in Hollywood like a member of the family. Oh, I'm sure. The thing that made us happy about this uh, this whole experience of uh, drawing on the chorus to help bring real authenticity to what they saw on stage, the chorus is not only singing a huge choral part, but they're the community. And the kind of acting that's required from the chorus in Porgy is, is, is a lot more than your average opera. Opening night in 1976 in Wolf Trap, Todd Duncan was in the audience, and he came up on stage afterwards uh, and addressed the audience, and the first words that came out of his mouth was, it's so black. And I thought, yes. In 1976, one of the things is you guys, you toured with it and you made the recording uncut not just we're going to go back to the 1935 but we're going to do every single note of it we're really trying to do the piece that Gershwin wrote but do it with complete integrity I had total confidence in sung recitatives you know there is so much beauty in these sung recits by the by the small roles that it just makes such a case for it to be an opera a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a radio show talking, you know, paying tribute to Lenny. And I, and I thought, I wonder if Lenny talks about Gershwin, because I've always thought that Bernstein saw himself as the heir apparent to <laughs> Gershwin. Not only does he talk about Gershwin, but he talks about Porgy and Bess. And, you know, when I did it on Broadway, he comes backstage to see it. 
And he says, I waited 40 years to see this piece done this way. You've done it. I don't have to. And I thought, well, what did he, what exactly did he mean by that? I mean, I sort of knew that it's because we were going back to the original and we were singing everything. But it was that. It was that. In the joy of music, he is so distraught about the fact that after it played in 1935 that went to spoken dialogue on a suggestion from Kurt Weill. Hmm. He was very good friends with Ira. And he went to Ira and he said, you know, the people don't want to listen to all this singing. You should just sing the main tunes and just talk the rest of this. And indeed, I heard recently, I heard this performance of Warfield and Price in Berlin in which Smallins was conducting and the cast was screaming their dialogue over the original orchestral score. So the score. orchestra was still playing the recitatives, playing, but they were just talking. But they just were just yelling heard. their dialogue, yelling well, Because actually, if you talked, you, couldn't, you wouldn't be heard, so it, you have to probably... Yeah. Yell and, and, and screaming all this stuff out. And I thought, oh my God, did we ever do this piece a favor? Because mm-hmm. these recits are so beautiful, and all you just need to do is make sure you cast them well so that everybody's singing them. You know, the audience wants to listen to them because they have beautiful mm-hmm. voices, or they're appropriate to the characters. So that was what Lenny meant by that. In this production in Seattle, we are basically doing the 1935 cuts, not what I did in 1976. I wanted to prove a point. We all wanted to prove a point at time, that this was fabulous music. It's all great music. It's great. But I know there's music critics who say, oh, his you know formal structures aren't A-plus level in your orchestration class or whatever. But uh, this is how a lot of people talk about Gershwin as being this kind of New York City melting pot that he just, he lived in a very, very you know, vivid cultural stew. He heard lots of different traditions and mixed them all up. So you've got little bits of ragtime in there. You've got spirituals. You've got blues. You have the blue note, which you know, comes up in all these little motifs. The motifs make you think, oh, it's Wagner. You've got these wonderful lyric passages that sound kind of like Puccini. As the conductor, well, do you have to be the crucible that fuses it all into one. I think at, at every step of the way it sounds like Gershwin. You know, it's a, he had a voice. And it's all those things that give him that voice. But I think you said it yourself that what links it together is the use of uh, motif. There is light motif or motif to however you want to describe it on virtually every other bar. That's always present. And I think that's what links it all together. Uh, in terms of it, it unifies the piece. Making it a really s- solid opera. Yeah. And I always think it's interesting because we know that when Porgy and Bess opened in 1935, everybody involved with it were Russian emigres, either mm-hmm. generation removed or current. And so people like Prokofiev and Shostakovich and those people, they heard, they all heard about this piece. They heard the music right away. They knew about it. And this controversy of whether it was an opera or a musical, which started right from the beginning, the Russians never had that issue. They said, oh, oh, it's the American Boris Gudinov. They got (laughs) right away because they heard the seriousness of the composition. You know, I mean, this music is frightfully difficult for the orchestra. Simon Rattle said the Porgy and Bess is as hard as Mm Wozzeck. It's really hard to play. You have these fugues when we kill Crown and Robbins. You know, you have that kind of music. You You have a sort of Ravel Debussy kind of harmonic ideas from time to time. You have the presence of jazz in inflection, in phrasing, and in actual writing. I mean, there's many times when he says, 
I want this in swing style. Well, I feel like you were just talking about a woman is a sometime thing where the orchestra almost becomes a little jazz combo. Right. It says to be swung. Yeah. You know, you're to swing that number. Mm-hmm. You're to swing it ain't necessarily so. You're to swing the boat that's leaving. Tell us specifically, technically, if you would, a little bit what that means in terms of, you know, if you're working with an orchestra that maybe that isn't so familiar with playing jazz, yeah, if you what see, do you as a conductor have to do to get them to do it right? If there are two eighth notes in classical music, if you see two eighth notes, you would go bum bum, you play them evenly. evenly. In swung style, you go bada. You just basically make the first one longer and the second one shorter, almost like a triplet where the first is a quarter note and then the third is an eighth. So, so you have, yes, a woman. Isa, so you don't go woman, isa, saham, tahim. And sometimes in jazz, you do do that, but you, you accent. Bop, bop. You, know, you, you mm-hmm. can accent things that's also created for jazz. The jazz, well, if you look at the accompaniment, and a woman is a sometime thing, listen to your daddy warn you. Buddha, Buddha, what Buddha, Buddha? You know, you've got those pops. Mm-hmm. They pop all the time, you know? It has to and, be articulated yeah, yeah, like that. Like yeah. that. So, where in Porking Best do you actually go much more to a legato or a, let's say, a, a rubato kind of Puccini or Italian? Well, there's, uh, what I think is so fascinating is you take a number like Beshu is My Woman, which is the big number of the big duet from the show, the most arching vocal line, you know, mm-hmm. very legato. But what's underneath it? A kind of tango. Here's this legato, and then underneath he informs that little jazz thing. That's what I mean by it's it's so jazz informed all the mm-hmm. time. Even if the singers are doing the most yeah. flowing lyrical right. legato melody, the orchestra is still keeping them. Look at American. my man's gone now. So you've got this wail of a melody going over this, but underneath it, again, is this this rhythmic idea. You know, the strength of rhythm, it's changing all the time. Constant multiple meters. You know, like you take something like the buzzard song. You know, so you're going, yep, up, 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 up. Then you're going yep, up, 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 and so back and forth. I mean, this is the stuff of early 20th century Stravinsky. There is a tremendous amount of dissonance in Porgy and Bess. Tremendous amount of dissonance, but also there's just all of this gorgeous melody and sophisticated use of harmony. This is still, you know, for a long time been considered the great American opera. And, it, and I think it's because it delves into 
the various American, you know, genres like ragtime, jazz, the Broadway style, mm -hmm. you know, and the spirituals, and spirituals the blues, the blues, yeah. and all of that is there. It's got it all fused together by leitmotif and by a classical approach to composing. This is why I felt that the recent foray was a dishonest and very bad thing to do to this piece. I would have had no problem if this piece would have been called Bess, loosely based on the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and Diane Paulus wanted to do a riff mm -hmm. on it. But they brought in a composer, a librettist, an arranger, and a book writer. And, and they tampered with this piece in a way and then called it the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. That was my big, that was what was unconscionable. Misrepresentation in advertising. Totally. And it was all happening because the, the Gershwin heirs wanted to find a way to make more money off Porgy and Bess and to find a way that the same people could perform it eight times a week. Because, you know, when we do it... You make more money that way. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, if, uh, and you can't change Gershwin's orchestrations. It's, it's, it's like deciding you want to do a new orchestration for Butterfly. Mm-hmm. You can't, I mean, you can do it, but you can't call it Puccini's Butterfly. It's his writing mm -hmm. in every way. Every time I do this piece, including my fond, fond memories of the last time we did it in Seattle, was that audience is on its feet at the end. How many times have you done it? I think it's now over 400. Yeah. Wow. Not all in a row, which is, makes it uh, mm -hmm. okay for me. You know what I mean? I mean you, do, uh, you do other operas, but there's probably, no, is there any other piece that you've done quite as often? Nothing near. I mean, this was, be you know, the only reason why I did 400 is because the first time out, I did 57, wait, eight times seven is 56. I did 56 performances in seven weeks in New York. It went out on tour to Seattle and San Francisco and San Diego and Chicago mm -hmm. and Miami, you know, Houston, and we were bringing this piece all over the place. So that meant that if you came to Seattle, you're going to try to get as many performances in as you can. So you're going to come here for two weeks and, and you know, do 13 or 14 performances. With multiple singers so that they can with, do them back to back. Oh, God. Yeah. And, and you're going to be, the singers will rotate out, but you're going to conduct every single one of those performances. Well, I, I, I learned my lesson. I After I did those 57, I got such bursitis, you know, that I <laughs> and I realized I got to bring in a matinee conductor. And so then, so then I started only doing six a week. But I was really glad when this piece got accepted by the opera companies as part of the repertoire and places like Detroit and Seattle and Washington and Chicago. And now it's, it's interesting because the first time two times you did it in Seattle was a tour and this production and the previous one in 2011 were much more homegrown with right. all Seattle. And it's better. It's better because like any tour, the people are doing it and it's all they do is do Porgy and Best. They go stark raving crazy. But now... We got a cast of people who sing in the standard repertoire, and anybody here doing it for the first time, they are so thrilled uh, to do it. It's interesting, but you really get more of a community feeling when you're actually tapping on when you a do it with a community. With, with a community, I felt that in Detroit. I felt that here. It's just, it's just amazing, and it crosses over to the footlights. Believe me. Well, it we have so many singers in this cast who already have big followings in Seattle. Alfred Walker has sung a lot of operas here, including our last performance, Aida. He was one of the Almanazros. Oh, great! And, you know, he's been singing here for ten years. It's a gorgeous and voice. And Angel Blue, the last time she was in Seattle, uh, she was our Violetta, and she, you know, just slayed them all. Mary Elizabeth Williams has had a fan club here since, I think, going back to when she was in the Young Artist Program. And I just wish new opera would 
takes more lessons from Porgy and Bess. I think the reason why we have so few new operas that get anywhere is because we don't create scores that we want to hear over and over again. We don't create scores where the most interesting part is what's on the stage, or at least as interesting on the stage as in the pit. When the turn of the century happened, we became so fascinated, especially when we had great orchestrators like Ravel building on what Rinsky-Korsakoff did with orchestration, that we became fascinated with what was possible to get out of the orchestra. And we had too many 20th century composers creating all this stuff in the orchestra and giving the singers a kind of obligato, boring part to sing that turned everybody off. Mm -hmm. What one has to remember is when Mimi sings in the middle of Mi Chiamo No Mimi, Not only is she singing that melody, the orchestra's playing that melody, and it goes right to your gut. And they're together. They're, they're they're, together. They become one. Yeah, they become one. So when we get Porgy and Bess singing, Bess, she was my woman now, and that third verse, the orchestra's playing that melody, and the singers are singing that melody, and, and, and it happens in I Loves You, Porgy, and it happens you know, throughout the evening. You know, when the orchestra's screaming, my man's gone now after Serena says my man's dead. And, and when, you know, it, it's just, it's, you don't have to do it all the time, but you have to do it enough where the orchestra and the stage are, are delivering these melodies. And this is what makes the audience remember the melody and want to hear the score again. You want people to, you know, love your, your operas. You have to create scores I'm not going to tell you how to do it, but you have to create a score that people want to hear again. Well, that's, you know? But that's the thing with Porgy and Bess. That's why it's, as you say now, it's kind of standard rep because people want to, oh, do that again. Do it. We know that song. Yeah. We love it. <laughs> Meister Domain, I'm afraid they are asking for you next door in the rehearsal studio. Thanks so much for, for being here, and we can't wait for opening night of Porgy and Bess. <laughs> <laughs>